You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the screen. For this morning, I will read the psalm in two different translations. First, in the English Standard Version, and then in the New Living Translation. Psalm 1 from the English Standard Version. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm 1 from the New Living Translation. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, or stand around with sinners, or join in with mockers. But they delight in the law of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They're like trees planted along a riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all that they do. But not the wicked. They're like worthless chaff scattered by the wind they will be condemned at the time of judgment. Sinners will have no place among the godly, for the Lord watches over the path of the godly, but the path of the wicked leads to destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We're continuing in our series in the book of Psalms, and this is Psalm 1. Last week, we started our series, and we were in Psalm 150. So you guys might be confused. If you weren't here last week, why are we starting our second part in Psalm 1 and started with 150? I just like going to the end first. It's just fun that way. Just in case you missed a sermon or missed the rest of the series, you got the end, so you're good to go. We started in Psalm 150 because we wanted to start with praise. See, we really believe that praise is the heartbeat of who we are as a church. We believe that praise is, is what we're ultimately here to do. We're here to bring praise to God. And because God in his goodness chose praise to be a, our way of completing the joy that we have in him. And he gets glory from that. What an incredible truth that is for us. And I love, I love the book of Psalms. I just love songs. You guys heard me last week. I shared this before. I love songs. I love singing. And that song that we sang, This Is My Desire. Have any of you guys ever heard that song before? So, yeah? Okay. I like the old school people. That song, I remember that song. I think it was, gosh, 20 years ago. I think it was. Yeah, 20 years ago, I was at a camp, and that song was like the main worship song at this camp. And that song we would sing over and over and again. I just remember, Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul. I just remember like, like I had tears in my eyes, a very emotional teenager, you know, worshiping God. Just like, I give you everything. And I just love it. Because it brings back those memories for me right now as we're singing that song. I'm not just expressing, yes, I'm expressing to God all these words, but I'm also remembering. I'm remembering the God who moved then is the same God who's, moved, who's moving now. I remember the commitment and the promises. I said, God, I give it to you then, and I'm going to give it to you now. 
And I love it. This is the power of song. And this is one of the beautiful power of the book of Psalms. Is yes, it's, 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 it's songs. And yes, it's, it's instruction. Yes, it's wisdom. Yes, it's lament. Yes, it's so much. It's, it's all of these things put together. St. Augustine wrote this. He says, what is there that may not be learned in the Psalms? It also seems as if the New Testament authors thought it summarized many of the Bible's themes because, you guys, I want you to know this, the New Testament alludes to and quotes the Psalms more than any other book. Quick trivia question, what's the largest book in the Bible? Say that again. Psalms, see? So why did God give us the book of Psalms? Some people will say it's an ancient hymnal, a devotional. As a matter of fact, you can see Psalms 105, 96, and 106 actually kind of strung together in 1 Chronicles chapter 16, and they used it in such a, a way. But by, how can we know? How do we know? How can we know what the purpose of the book of Psalms is? How do you typically know what the purpose of a book is? I was written. Anybody? Read it. I like that. <laughs> right? You read it. You figure out that's very good. <laughs> typically, though, what you do is you read the first part, right? The introduction of a book typically tells you what's the purpose of this book, Right? Now, Psalm 1 and 2, I want you guys to know this, is seen at the beginning, and it's at the beginning of the book of Psalms because it's seen as the introduction to the book of Psalms. There's some few key indicators for this. There's key repetitions that have been bound together to form kind of a tight unit. The first word in Psalm 1 is blessed, and the first word in the last line of the psalm is also the word blessed. Repeating the same word at the beginning, at the end of the literary unit, is a common technique in Hebrew poetry called inclusion. So these similar endings in both 1 and 2 show that this is a separate work set together to, for a purpose. It's also known as an orphan psalm. An orphan psalm is a psalm that's not accredited to anybody. Most of the psalms are said, psalm written by David, psalm written by the choir master, or whoever it may be. But Psalm 1 and 2 does not have an inscription to it. It doesn't have somebody that says, wrote, who wrote this psalm. So it's set apart by the, the editors of the book of psalms in the beginning to show that this is the introduction to the whole book. This tells you what the book of Psalms is all about, and it's basically this, a manual for abundant living experienced through godly living. The book of Psalms is a manual for abundant living experienced through godly living. Sidney uh, Gredenis writes, the editors of the Psalter have placed Psalm 1, a Torah or a wisdom psalm at the head of this collection in order to signal that every following psalm is to be read as part of God's teaching, instruction for Israel. So while many folks consider the psalms to be kind of like uh, a description of human emotion, it's so much more than just describing our affections and emotions. It's an instruction for our expression. Songs teach, psalms teach, whether we realize that or not, in these songs, this book of Psalms, whether it does capture the depth and breadth of human emotion, it is also meant to teach. So let's learn from them. Psalm 1, the psalmist describes the blessed. He says, blessed. Two different passages he talks about. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So sometimes if you're going to describe something to somebody, you begin by describing what that thing is not. So for example, if I was going to describe the church, I might start off by saying we're not a country club or we're not just a building, right? It's a way to describe something by saying what it's not. If I'm going to describe a movie, I'm like, well, it's not a romantic comedy. It's not a rom-com. You know, it's, a, an, it's, it's not a chick flick or whatever it may be. It's a way of describing a movie. I would often start off by saying what it's not. And in describing the blessed person, the psalmist begins by describing what this person is not. 
And this path, this description goes down a certain direction. And as you follow it, this idea develops. It's, 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 it's not a positive path, it's a downhill path. In the Psalms, this is called advancing parallelism. It's a poetic device where each line advances the thought of the line before. So the first verb is here, it says, walks. Then the walk slows down. See, it's, it's opposite, it's, it's going downward. The walk slows down to stand. The stand goes then to sit. And these are all the things that blessed man does not do. He walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So picture this, if you will. And you're going down a street filled with the wicked, whatever the wicked may be in your mind. The wicked have gathered on a particular path. And as you make your way down the street, you start asking people around you for counsel. So you're, 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 you're walking amongst the path of the wicked, amongst the counsel of the wicked. But then that walk slows down. The psalmist continues, stand in the way of sinners. This doesn't mean, of course, that it gets in the way of sinners as if opposing them, but it means he's, his, his walk is slowing down. He's now standing amongst them. So the first issue dealt with the pattern of thinking. This idea of asking for counsel is typically a pattern of thinking. But then it goes towards a pattern of behavior. One translation says this person takes the path that sinners tread. This has moved beyond thinking, it's become a lifestyle. So it goes from walking amongst the counsel of, this idea of thinking, now goes to standing in. So from a pattern of thinking about to a pattern of behavior. Then it goes to a lifestyle. This guy, the stairs keep going down, he moves from walking to standing to third to sitting in the seat of scoffers. This is you going to this place where instead of just, you know, somebody comes down to you, comes to your house and knocks on your door, and he's like, oh, he's standing there at your doorway, he's going to be like, oh, he's only here for a little while. But this idea that if he comes in, takes his shoes off, sits down on your couch, you're like, oh, you're here for a while, aren't you? All right, oh, your shoes are off. Okay. Mm. You asked for a cup of water. Ugh. This idea is, when you sit in it, this idea is, is opposite of movement. He's gone fully from walking to standing to sitting. Walkie says the pattern of thinking, walking in the council, became a pattern of behavior, standing on their path, that now becomes a pattern of identification, sitting with. Further, the steps become more and more concerned with our inner realities. To hear the wicked's counsel is one thing. To ape what the wicked do is another. However, sitting with the scoffers implies that you're joining in with the scoffing. Alec Motor writes that those, there are those who have settled into a dismissive attitude of rubbishing all that is spiritual. Guys, I want you to see this. This is a natural phenomenon in the hearts of man, isn't it? It's this slow hardening that happens as we walk along the path of the wicked. You've seen this played out in your life and in other people's lives, haven't you? I mean, I cannot be the only one. This is true for me often. It's often I've, I'll start off by maybe just hearing the temptation hearing the bad counsel, hearing the, the peer group or the message that probably isn't the best thing for me to hear, right? And so I'm just walking, then I start hearing it, then I start, and it starts affecting my thinking. And once it affects my thinking, I start slowing down. And I get to this pattern of, okay, I'm listening to it, I'm giving in, now I'm standing there. Now I'm starting to mimic it. It's not just in my thinking now, it's in my actions. I'm not just hearing the sin. I'm not just hearing the wickedness. I'm not just hearing things that are contrary to the heart of God. I am now doing it. I'm now acting it out. I start mimicking it. And this experience may become addicting, isn't it? 
Guys, can I tell you, sin wouldn't be sin. There'd be nothing, there'd be nothing tempting about sin if you didn't want to do something about it, right? Sin wouldn't be difficult to stand against if it was like, it's like if, if it was eating, like, committing sin was like for me, like eating like, I actually like Brussels sprouts. I'm trying to think of food I don't like. You ever have bitter melon? Anybody? Bitter melon? Very few people would ever have bitter melon. I don't like bitter melon. I, this is how difficult it is for me to come up with the food I don't like. It'd be like eating bitter melon for me. I don't like bitter melon. The idea is that if, if committing sin tastes like a food that you don't want to eat, then you wouldn't commit sin. But often committing certain sins for you in our human flesh, in our broken estate, it's like eating chocolate. It's like doing that thing that you, for some reason, crave. And guys, can I tell you this? Do you know why there's something inside of you that craves sin? Do you guys know this? Do you guys know why? And I'll tell you why, because it goes, oh no. Is that we are in our broken state when the fall of man happened, our sinful state became so powerful. Our human nature is such that we all tend to want to crave in our brokenness sin that is contrary to the heart of God. And there's something appealing about it. There's something appealing in our human state that says, hey, pride and, and greed and materialism and consumers, all this stuff that rules your thought and your bodies and your life processes says, hey, that's a good thing. In our brokenness and our humanness, we crave those items and those things that make us feel like we're God and make us feel like we're powerful. And so the sin that is exists, the sin that is here, this... this, this Dangerous progression that goes from walking to standing to sitting is a common human phenomenon. And no longer are they just led astray by those, but they are those. It's experiencing this is not what the blessed man does. But can I tell you something, people? That this constant kind of progression is something that we need to be constantly aware of in our own lives. For the married men and women out there, there's a progression that often leads to adultery and often starts with the, the counsel of the wicked that leads to standing amongst, that leads to you sitting identifying in it. Do you hear me? For those of you who are kind of buying into the lies of materialism and prosperity of this world, there's a, there's a progression in it, Right? It starts with the thinking. It starts with the counsel of the wicked that says all you need is more money. All you need is more wealth. All you need is to worry about these things and you'll be happy. But then it goes to, well, maybe that's right. Maybe I'll start standing in that. Maybe I'll start living like that. Maybe I just need to only focus on money and wealth. Then you start sitting in it, identifying, says, hey, money is all that matters. Do you hear the progression? Do you see the danger? Do you identify that that is not the path of the blessed? See, here's the deal. The problem is what sells that path is that that's the path that will make you happy. That, that's the path that will bring you joy. But that is absolutely contrary to what the Bible says is a path to joy and blessedness. The blessed do. The psalmist has been outlining what the blessed man does not do. All of this has been built kind of this, this description of what a blessed man actually does instead. And the, the contrast could not be starker. This is what is beautiful. The blessed man does instead. He delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. When this psalm, when the psalms were put together, likely around the time of Ezra, this law would kind of typically mean the, the Pentateuch, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy. 
Now, there were other probably books or narrative that they would include in this, but that was typically what they meant. But however, I want you guys to know this, that even what was also probably included was actually some of the Psalms that were probably in existence before they were completely edited and put together. But for us, what this translates to us today is the full teaching of God's word. Today, it would include that we meditate on the, all of scriptures. Blessed is the one who meditates and delights on them. Now, the word here for medita- meditation is awesome. I love meditate. Next week, we're going to be diving into Psalm 2. And in that text, the kings of the earth and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. This is when the antithesis of the blessed man is granted power. The rulers of the world think through in detail how they can kind of stiffen their necks against the Lord. That same verse, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain, in Psalm 2.1. The word translated plot is the same word translated here to meditate. While in our era, meditation is something that kind of emphasizes the emptying out of the mind and doing weird contortions with our body, that's not what the psalmist is talking about when he says to meditate. Anybody got the yoga reference there? No? Throwing that out there. Rather than emptying one's head of rational notions concerning the truth, the blessed one fills their mind with the truth of God's scripture. Unlike the wicked in Psalm 2, the blessed man thinks with great precision on the word. He turns it over and over again, thinks about the nuances of the word of God, studies it, and sees what the Lord reveals about himself through the word. Now, I know some of you might feel weird with the word meditation or meditate. You're just not a fan of saying, um, for long periods of time. Well, I want to say to you is that I bet that you right now currently know how to meditate the way the scripture is describing. You just don't realize you're doing it. And you don't realize you're meditating on the wrong things. And I'll say that again. I bet you there's so many of you in this room who you already know and you're already practicing this idea of meditating and meditating on things, but you just don't realize that you're doing it on the things that not of scripture and not of God. You might obsess over a relationship, over a news feed in your Facebook, over realities on the news. If the internet has taught us anything, it's not only that we can waste large amounts of time, but we can actually mentally dial dial in obsessively and do so habitually over any little thing. Is that right? We can and have disciplined ourselves to actually meditate. We just haven't been doing it on things that actually bring us joy. I'll say that again. We can and have actually been practicing this idea of meditating. We just haven't been doing it on the things that actually bring us joy. So consider what then it means for you to meditate on God's word more. Maybe for you, that's actually starting to read his word. Maybe for you that just means, hey, instead of spending X amount of time reading the news feeds on your Facebook, spend that same amount of time reading the Word. And I say that to you guys knowing, I know this sounds like convicting and kind of damning to you. I'm just saying this is a very true message to me. I often liken it to, I go on Facebook late at night sometimes, right before I go to bed, I have my phone next to my bed, and I'm like, ooh, what's going on on Facebook, and what's going on in the news? Then I'm like, on there, all of a sudden, 20 minutes later, I'm like, did I just spend 20 minutes looking at what? You know, somebody's review of a food meal that they had somewhere or vacations I wish I was on or random political arguments. I just spent 20 minutes like it was nothing looking through Facebook newsfeed. When was the last time I spent 20 minutes in the world like it was nothing? Do you hear that? We all meditate. 
We just haven't been doing it on the word, on the real thing that brings us joy. And for you, maybe that's just starting to just, just open his word and just read it. Guys, can't tell you, it's the words of life. You need it. I need it. Maybe this means for you that maybe not as much reading more for you, but maybe it's more you processing more. Maybe it's not so much you reading more words, but you actually taking the time to be like thinking about what you read. Because some of you guys, I'll be one of those, some of you guys are like, oh, well, I got to get some reading done, so I'll just kind of read really quickly, right? You kind of have a list of things that you have to do that day. Got to read the Bible, got to do this, got to do this, take the trash out, got to do this, you know? And it's a chore for you. Maybe for some of you, meditating on the Word is not just reading the Word, but stopping and reading it and soaking it in. Thinking about it. Taking it and be like, what does this really mean? What does this really say about God? What does this say about me? Maybe some of you need to practice writing a sentence about what you've read. You need to journal a little bit. Maybe you need to draw a picture. If I drew a picture, it'd always look like a stick figure every time because that's all I can draw. It's terrible, but maybe you need to write a little bit. Maybe you need to record your thoughts. Whatever it may be, you need to meditate on the word. You need to turn scripture maybe into a song. Maybe you could just be like, maybe if you're good at this, I can't do this because I'll just copy another song and just do the same thing over and over again. But maybe you need to take scripture and say, you know what, I'm gonna turn this into a song so that I can sing this truth over and over again to myself. Maybe it's not merely what you do alone. Maybe your conversations with church members and your friends need to be centered on Scripture more. Uh, can I just be real with you? When was the last time you walked to your friend and be like, hey, I read Psalm 119, and man, let me tell you, it blew me away. What would you think about it? Well, more often, it's like, how's work? Weather? Yeah, everything good? Yeah, kids? Okay. All right, cool. See you later. Maybe we need to do it together. Maybe we need to meditate on Scripture together. And challenge each other and say, hey, James, what do you think about that scripture? How did it move in your life? How does it affect you? And maybe I need you to come to me and say, Lawrence, man, Psalm 2, whew, what's that about? Let's talk about it. Meditate doesn't have to be by yourself. It can be in community. It can be as a group. But we need to meditate on Scripture together. This is not a, should never be confused for a Bible competition or who knows more competition to say, oh, look at me. I know a lot about the Bible and I read so much more than everybody else. But we so often dial in habitually into lesser things. I can sit down and watch a two-hour movie like it's nothing. I love watching movies. I can sit down and watch Avengers again and Black Panther and I can watch those movies like it's nothing. I don't know if I can spend two hours just diving into the world like it's nothing. Right? But do you know which one of those things brings me life? Which one of those things tells me truth about myself? Which one of those things tells me truth about who God is? Which one of those things are the very words of God to me? Blessed is the one who meditates on his law day and night. Guys, I want you to know this meditation is a fruit of interchange, which is why the second clause and on his law he meditates actually further describes the first clause. His delight is in the law of the Lord. This is a mark of our conversion. Can I tell you that? A mark, one of the fruits, one of the marks of our conversion, one of the marks of us falling in love with God, knowing that we've been transformed and redeemed by him, is we actually fall in love with his words. We fall in love with being around him. We fall in love with meditating on him. You know, can I tell you, when I was first, uh, Gina hates, I, I'm going to do it again. I'm sorry. Last week I used way too many family illustrations, but I'm going to do it again. I wasn't playing on this one, but I'll do it anyway. <laughs> when we first started dating, I had no clue what it, and I, it's just such a weird concept of being in love. 
right? Isn't it, isn't it a weird concept, being in love? I had no clue what that felt like or what that meant. All I knew was that movies said it should look like this, right? So I was waiting for that movie moment in my life where I'm like, oh my gosh, yes, I'm in love, and the birds are chirping everywhere, and everything is wonderful, and I'm floating around. I'm like, yay, this is it. And, you know, and I was waiting for that, 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 that moment in our dating relationship. Like, okay, so I really like this girl, and she's pretty awesome, but when do I know that's that moment, right? How many of you guys ever felt that way in your dating relationship? You're like, I'm, I'm a little confused by this stuff. I was confused by love. I didn't know what that meant, right? Can I tell you something though? That once you choose to love, once you say, you know, it's not about waiting to fall into it, but once you choose to sacrificially love someone, something starts changing in your life around you. That you can start saying, I can't tell you when I fell in love, but I can tell you that after I chose to love, there's the stuff that happened in our life. Do you hear that? And I can tell you that after I chose to love, that we started wanting to spend more time with each other. I started coveting what she would say. Her words had more power over me, right? Can I tell you this sometimes? When you come to your relationship with God, let me tell you something here, that I can't tell you when you had your relationship, your conversion experience. I don't know all of you guys when all that stuff happened, but can I tell you something, that, that you can start seeing the effects of you choosing to love Christ and follow hard after him? You'll see it. When one of those effects you'll see is that you start loving his word. Do you hear that? You start loving his word. The blessed don't do certain things and the blessed do others. That is, they delight and meditate upon God's word. Then in verse 3, the psalmist uses a simile to describe what this person is actually like. You'll, you'll note that the psalmist is full of beautiful imagery to describe something. They do it often because words often just aren't enough to describe something. You have to kind of, sometimes just listing God's attributes doesn't cut it. You know, instead the psalmist used imagery like, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Or as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. These are, these are just images that you can like, how high is the heavens above the earth? How far is the east is from the west? I can't even comprehend that. And it's like, yes, that's the point. That's the point. So the idea is true here also in Psalm 1-3. The psalmist couldn't accurately convey what is meant by saying blessed, so he uses this. He says he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. This is your picture. If you like picture books, or like, you're like, oh, I don't read the Bible because there's no pictures in it. This is your picture for you. I know that doesn't work, but just in case. This, is, this image is intent that you actually create a mental picture in your mind. And I don't want you to close your eyes. I'd ask you to close your eyes, but I'm afraid you might fall asleep. So no closing your eyes. But I want you to picture a beautiful meadow, an incredible field, and you see these rivers and these streams and these gentle flowing creeks around, and they all kind of go back to this one point. You're on top of a hill. And you see these streams meeting in one beautiful location, kind of higher up on the bank of a stream, you see this perfect tree. And we're talking the type of tree that it has limbs and, and you look up into its leaves and you almost get dizzy because it's so big and there's too many limbs, you can't even count how many branches there are. You, you try to like, you get all your friends and you couldn't wrap your arms around the tree, this beautiful, massive tree. And then you see this the best part, this delicious fruit. 
and you take a bite out of it. It's kind of like a combo apple and mango, like a, a pango. And that's what I came up with because there's like, like two of my favorite, like I like the crispiness of an apple, but the sweetness of a mango. I feel like that'd be a delicious fruit. God, just like that. Um, and you might, you think of this and you see this tree and you think this is what a tree is supposed to look like. This is a real tree. This is the ideal tree. And here's what we see in this passage is that we see the ideal for humanity. God determined how he or she might function best. In this text, we find the one who delights in the Lord receives this blessing. And this is what it looks like to be this way, to be fortunate, to be happy, to be joyous. Now, when you follow the path in verse 1, you see that doesn't lead to lasting joy. I mean, how many of you guys have done this? You've seen the path of the wicked. How many of you guys have seen, you know, your testimony can be that. I've, I've walked amongst the path of the wicked. I listened to its advice. I sat down and I, I stood still and then I sat down in it. And can I tell you, it does not lead to joy. You thought it might at first, but your testimony is one that says it does not. God's word knows you, knows how you ought to navigate this world, its relationships, its pressures, its disappointments. In grace, he speaks to us here in the Psalms. This commentary lists some characteristics of this tree. In this commentary, it says stability, planted, vitality, by streams of water, productivity, yields its fruit, durability, does not wither, and prosperity, and all that he does, prosper. This is the role of the Word of God in our lives to plant us in stability, to give our spiritual lives vitality, produce fruit and durability, no matter the circumstances of our day-to-day. Now, in all that he does prospers, requires us to define prosperity or success the way God defines it. That is, in all things, God's purposes are unfolding. Can I tell you this? And this is something that we're going to get into later on and when we talk about wisdom psalms and wisdom literature. As a matter of fact, Pastor Danny's going to preach on wisdom. Is that correct? Yeah, later on. And one of the things that you'll see, like in the book of Proverbs, you'll see so many instances in the book of Proverbs where it says, if you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, you'll be blessed, right? And typically, I want you to hear this, that is true of most of the world, but it's not always true. Am I right? Now, you reap what you sow, right? But not always, isn't that correct? Right? Even later on in the book of Psalms, it talks about this one psalm where it says, hey, how come the wicked are prospering? Isn't that a question that we all have? Right? If we reap what we sow, and if we're blessed, and we're honorable, shouldn't we be the one prospering? Why are we not prospering and the wicked prospering? Guys, I want you to understand this, that there are wisdom psalms out there that says overall, generally speaking, this is a true statement, but it doesn't always, it's not always the truth. Or it's not always true, if that makes sense. Do you hear me? This is a general idea but it's not saying this is always the case. And in this, circumstances, in this circumstance, yes, we will prosper in all that we do, but it's not always gonna be the case except in this way. That we will prosper in that God's purposes will always come true. While it might not look like we anticipated, the Lord will continue to conform us to the image of his son as we delight in him. That's the true and better prosperity gospel. Do you hear that? The true and better prosperity gospel is not that everything we do is equal to more money. It's not that the more money we give away and the more righteous things we do, the more wealth and material things we'll get. It's that the more, the more we delight in the Lord, the more we delight in his law, the more we become like Jesus. And that is the better prosperity. Do you hear that? 
this next step in the psalm takes kind of a, a, a weird, sharp turn into the wicked again. We go from talking about this beautiful tree, this is prosperity, and this is what uh, the blessed do, but then the blessed takes a weird image. It says, all of a sudden, verse 4, it says this, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff, chafe, that the wind drives away. How do you pronounce that? Chaff. I love how people are so confident how they pronounce that. Okay. All right. <laughs> Good for you guys. <laughs> the wicked are like chaff, and th- that the wind drives away. What is chaff? Quick question. You guys are so confident. I want to hear. What is chaff? Say again. Yeah, very good. Did anybody hear that? That's right. It's the husk. Very good. Did you guys hear that? That's just stuff that you don't want, right? Chaff, like in grain, for example, wheat, is the husk of it that's loosened from the kernel by beating, right? It is swept away by the wind, and what's left is the, is the prepared grain. But the rest of it, the, the kind of stuff that you don't want, is lighter, weightless, and it can be swept away by the wind. This is the stuff that's worthless. It's dry. It's rootless. It's, this, this is the image of the good stuff and the bad stuff. The good stuff that you want and the stuff that's worthless. It's also image used all throughout the Bible to talk about the day of judgment. Specifically, Zephaniah chapter 2 talks about the chaff of the day of judgment. And this is what the psalmist turns to at the end, the end of the wicked, is that the end of, for the wicked is that they're like chaff. Chaff? Chaff? Chaff. <laughs> I struggle with that word, guys. <laughs> Staff, chaff. Thank you, Gina. <laughs> Anybody ever had a problem with the word specific? I always had a problem with that word. Specific? Okay, okay. We know that the wicked are those of the verse, first verses of the Psalter. It's, the, it's those not on the path of righteous, but the wicked are the ones who are, who are walking, standing, sitting, and scoffing, and live in this path. Therefore, the wicked will, stand, will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Now, this language is only used here, guys. I want you to hear this. In all the Hebrew Bible, this image is only used here. Mark Furtado says this, the wicked will not be able to withstand the judicial process. Mark Furtado says that the language here used is one that con- conveys kind of a, a court system, a, a kind of a, a court scene. It says this is a picture of... Um, of, of, of a court saying, hey, here's the wicked and the righteous. Here's the result of both ways. In the day of judgment, both ways will be here. The path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. And the, uh, the, right, the wicked has no place here. The winds of judgment will blow, the chaff will be gone, and the tree shall remain. Now I want you to hear this, and I want you to hear me very well when it says this. For me, when I read this scripture, part of me starts this idea when I read it that says, yes, yeah, I, I'm with you, God. There's the path of the wicked and the path of the righteous. And I read this and I think, yes, God, you're gonna, you're, we need to be away from the path of the wicked. And, and I, I just kind of says, okay, that's great. This is normal scripture to me. But then I kind of run to this thought that I have. And I get to start reading this passage and I think, I am not that guy. Right? I start reading this passage and I'm like, I don't delight in the law all the time. I don't delight and meditate on his word day and night. 
I struggle. I struggle as a husband. I struggle as a father. I struggle as a pastor. I struggle as a man. I struggle all the time. And I look at this and I'm like, honestly, if I had to summarize who I am more as I look at it and read this passage of scripture, I'm probably more often the guy who listens to the counsel of the wicked. I'm probably more often the guy who stops and stands amongst the wicked. I'm probably more often the guy who sits with the scoffers. If I had to choose which one do I relate to more, which one is more me, I'm not sure if I can be the one that says I meditate on the word day and night. I'm not sure if I can be the one that says I just delight in the law. I struggle. Because honestly, if I'm just real with myself and I'm real with all of you, that does not honestly seem like me. So then I have this problem. If that's not me, then am I in the way of the wicked and I have no place to stand amongst the congregation of the righteous? Right? Maybe that's you here today. Maybe you're like me and you relate to this. I want you to hear this. In verse 6, it says this. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Of course, God, God's knowledge of the righteous is not limited in any way. It means he intimately is aware of their way, embraces those of the way, and cares for them, watches over their walking. Where the blessed man walks or does not walk is the way the Lord knows and watches over. I want you to hear this. The Lord is on every other page of the Bible. The Lord is the main character of the Psalms. If someone is blessed, it's because they've been blessed by him. He's the one who determines the path that they walk. And if they're planted like this tree, it's because of his doing. The verb is a divine passive particle. That means God is the planter. So here's the best part. The verb the psalmist uses for planted might better be translated transplanted. That notion implies that the tree is not where it once was. It's been moved. You might say it's been a dry region, a place of perishing, a place of withering. But God lifted the tree out of the land and placed it at the intersection of multiple streams of water. If you're like me, you know that this description of the righteous man is not you. You haven't been delighting the law. When the wind blows, you feel more like chafe than a tree. Chaff. Gosh. It's interesting to know that the psalmist uses a singular in those first few verses. There is a blessed man. It's as if the psalmist points us to someone in particular, someone who never succumbed to the counsel of the wicked, nor imitated their lifestyle, nor assumed their attitude toward which God ordains, someone who delighted in the law of the Lord without tripping, meditating upon it in the ways we long for. This someone who, though facing the winds of sin, manifested deep roots of joy. Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, says it's the kingly duty to, to meditate on the law. It's the king's responsibility to meditate on the law. This man lived the blessed life of someone that we failed to. He fulfilled the law, all of it, every bit of it. And as we look to him, he enables us to delight in it. In fact, the Spirit writes that law upon our hearts. His name is Jesus Christ. And he is the only way and the only means in which I can come to this psalm and then actually proclaim that I can be part of the way of the righteous instead of the way of the wicked. John 3.16. Guys, you've heard John 3.16 a million times, right? 
But what does it say? It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does it say at the end of verses 5 and 6 about perishing? Literally, Psalm 1 says that the wicked will perish. But in John 3, it says the wicked will not perish if they choose to believe in the righteous one, the one who fulfills the law, the one who meditates on the law, who delight is in the law. Psalm 1, yes, is instruction, but Psalm 1 is also anticipating the coming Savior. And the only way that we can look at Psalm 1 and say that is us is because we are a transplanted tree. We are a tree in a dry and withering land where there is no water, but Jesus was the fulfillment of Psalm 1. He died upon the cross, lived the life that we couldn't live, died upon the cross in our place so that we can be a transplanted tree, that our tree now can take roots amongst living water and we can bear much fruit. Can I tell you this, my people? Hear me very well. That I know myself and I know my sin and I know who I am as a husband and I know who I am as a father and I know who I am as a man and I know who I am as your pastor and I fail over and over and over again and I hate it. But my hope over and over again that I can hold on to, that I can stand proudly and bold, boldly proclaim is that it's not in anything good that I've done that I can earn my place as your pastor or as your husband or as my kid's father, but it's all in the work of Jesus Christ and him alone that I can stand upon and I can be rooted in. Because if it wasn't in anything else, anything that I did, that it would be blown away by the wind. But man, I get to stand in Jesus. For those of you who don't know, for those of you who don't know Jesus in such a way, as Lord and as Savior, as the one who you can be found in, the one who's transplanted you, the one who is righteous, the one who said, who took upon divine wrath and judgment so that you can now be looked upon as clean and accepted, as one who does not sin and walk amongst the wicked, but who now walks amongst the righteous. For those of you who don't know, can I tell you, can I tell you that you can know Jesus like that? That he is the only answer. And for those of you who do, may you see the words of Psalm 1, see the example of Jesus and say the path of blessed life is standing in Jesus, the confidence that Jesus gives you to say, I will no longer walk amongst the path of the wicked. I can be rooted tree, not because of anything good I did, because Jesus Christ transplanted me here. But in doing so, now I will meditate on his law. Now I can truly delight. Guys, we could never truly delight in the law because all it led to was our condemnation. Do you hear me? We could never truly delight in the law because all the law led to was showing how inadequate we were to what is right, what is good, what is just. But now that the justice has been met, now that it's been fulfilled in Jesus, we can now delight in it and say, yes, there is justice. Yes, there is a new kingdom coming. 